welcome once again to Paranormal Explorers Podcast. I'm your host, Keith. Tonight, we're going to talk about a hugely debated topic that's pretty scary and very interesting to say the least. We're going to talk about the topic of demonic possession. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I can cover this entire topic in one go. Um, you know, it's one of those topics that's very extensive. So we're going to go ahead and cover this topic over the course of a few different seasons. I'll have one episode per season that's going to solely focus on demonic possession, and this is going to be that episode for this season. So that's how we're going to do it moving forward, okay? Uh, so let's jump in, shall we? The first topic that we're going to go ahead and talk about today is demonic possession as a whole. So what exactly is demonic possession, right? And what it is per uh, Christianity and Catholicism, right? So Christianity has held the possession, held that possession derives from the devil as lesser demons and the fallen angels in the battle between Satan and heaven. And so one of the strategies that Satan uses is its possession of humans. The New Testament mentions several episodes in which Jesus drove out demons from persons. While most Christians believe that demonic possessions are involuntary affliction, there are biblical verses that suggest that demon possession is voluntary. And an example of this is Judas Iscariot, who fell under the devil's possession in John 13.27, because he continually agreed to do the devil's suggestions to betray deep Jesus and wholly submitted to him. But I think the most in-depth is going to be Catholicism. So... Catholicism exorcists differentiate between ordinary satanic demonic activity or influence and extraordinary satanic demonic activity, which could take six different forms, right? And so these forms are as follows. Possession, and this is which Satan or demons take full possession of a person's body without their consent. This possession usually comes as a result of a person's actions and actions that lead to an increased susceptibility to Satan's influence. Uh, the second one is obsession, which includes sudden attacks of irrationality, irrationally obsessive thoughts, usually culminating in suicidal ideation, and which typically influences dreams. The next one, which I know everybody's familiar with, is oppression, uh, and this is which there is no loss of consciousness or involuntary action, such as the biblical book of Job, in which Job was tormented by Satan, through a series of misfortunes and business, material positions, family, and health. Number four is external physical pain caused by Satan or demons. Number five is infestation, which affects houses, objects, things, animals. And number six, which is subjection, in which a person voluntarily submits to Satan or demons. Whew, that's a lot of stuff, right? That's a lot of things to talk about. So... You know, with that, it kind of breaks it down for us and what a lot of people know about demons and how Catholicism handles it, which would make sense why it's very, uh, you know, the Vatican has exorcists. And I think most of us know it as, right, infestation, external physical pain, oppression, obsession, and then possession. I think those are reverse in the sense of that's how we are, uh, that, that's how we categorize them as they're happening to a person, right? The steps leading up to full possession. So with that, we're going to go ahead and lead ourselves into the first story of tonight. Is Annalise Michelle. Now I have this feeling that I am very much butchering this, <laughs> but this is one of the most, I would say probably one of the most famous um, or, uh, demonic possessions to date. This possession story inspired the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose. So, let's kind of jump in. 
So, Annalise Michelle was born on September 21st, 1952 in Lebelfing, Bavaria, West Germany, to a Roman Catholic family, right? So she had three sisters and very, very devout parents. And she went to church with her family twice a week, and she had extremely strict rules, and as she was getting older, her family was putting extreme pressure on her as, as she got older, right? And so let's kind of move on. So she started having psychological issues about the age of 16. And at this time, she started experiencing these problems because of these pressures that her parents were constantly putting on her. And she was claiming that she was constantly saying that she could see the face of demons at certain times of the days. So her parents took her to the doctor. Uh, she was diagnosed with psychosis, and this was caused by temporal lobe epilepsy, and she started taking medication. So after she started to take this medication, uh, her mental situation started to get worse. And when she prayed, she claimed that she could hear voices like she was damned, and that she would rot in hell. Uh, and she also began to hallucinate. And because of her treatments, her condition worsened, and she immersed into depression rather than getting better. Uh, however, despite these situations, right, she graduated from the University of Wurzburg in 1973. And she was claimed to be too religious, um, but a lot of people say that it was the family's pressure that caused her to adopt such such personality regarding religion it actually got so bad to a point where she became afraid of, of uh, religious items such as the cross uh, and so at this point religion has become her enemy right and her family you know started treating her worse and as they started treating her worse she started to hate them more uh, so during this time a request came from her relatives to send her away to isolation. And also, her family, but the people around her and a few priests who didn't even know her, encouraged her and persuaded her um, to have a demon ritual. And so during this this time, she was attacking people around her. Um, she was drinking her own urine and eating insects. And despite taking various antipsychotic medications day by day, her symptoms worsened. And she was saying that she could see demons. And the reason, the way she could see these demons was by making deep growls and growing things. So as she started to do these things, she would see demons more and more and more right? so this progressed and finally an exorcism was performed uh, this exorcism was performed by Ernest Alt he believed that she didn't look at least didn't look like an epileptic and that she was suffering from demonic possession uh, therefore Alt encouraged Joseph Stang was the local bishop to allow an exorcism. Uh, Joseph granted the priest Arnold Renz permission to exorcise according to the Ritual Romanium of 1614 by calling the local psychopath in total secrecy. In a letter to the priest Ernest Alt in 1975, Annalise uh, Michelle wrote, I am nothing, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. I want to suffer for other people. But this is so cruel. And so, the exorcism began September 24th, 1975. And during this time, they completed 67 exorcisms um, sessions, once or twice a week, and each of these lasting up to four hours at a time. This was performed about 10 months between 1975 and 1976. 
So on July 1st, 1976, Annalise Michelle died in her own home. She suffered broken knees due to continuous uh, genuflexion. She was able to move without assistance and was reported to have contracted pneumonia. Um, her autopsy report concluded that her death was malnutrition and dehydration due to starvation. Uh, they're saying that the main evidence, the main evidence of her death, was you know obvious. So uh, her family and these priests were sued by the state and after the investigation the state prosecutor maintained that Annalise's death could have been prevented even one week before she died and the case has been cited as an example of a misidentified mental illness negligence abuse and religious hysteria uh, so her family was arrested right um, the priests that were serving got a uh, prison sentence and her family was actually released shortly after being arrested and uh, the charges were dropped. So after this incident, the exorcism permits in Germany decreased and strict rules were introduced to prevent crimes. So I would like to let you guys hear a couple of minutes from a recording that is of a few of the tapes that was released. Um, now, after this this is finished, I will go ahead and I will retune English what was said is, is in German. And that way we can kind of have a thing. And then we'll have a little discussion about what we think it could have been afterwards. So go ahead and take a listen. So through all of this, and, and as you can hear, that's really creepy, right? And I'll leave it up to you to decide if you believe that Annalise Michelle was actually possessed or not. It's hard to say. It really is. I think that a little girl can make her voice deep and creepy if she really wanted to. And could do perversions of faith, especially after her family has forced that kind of stuff upon her over and, and over again. So I definitely think it's plausible that in her own head, she was possessed. And with that, she's able to manifest some of those things that kind of came along with it, right? You know, hearing the demons and becoming afraid of religious relics. And that kind of stuff really tends to come along when somebody 
believe something that far. But at the same time, it's incredibly possible that she was in fact possessed by the devil. Now, one thing I want to add in here that I, I, I kind of forgot, she claimed that inside her was the Judas, Nero, Hitler, Cain, and Lucifer. Wow, Lucifer. And it's important to note that Annalise condoned every action taken during these rituals. And so she would do her new flexion, which is the act of bending a knee to the ground. So what I'm putting together here is that she would bend the knee to the ground, right? So she would get on her knees to pray. And so she would do this. Uh, they had to hold her up sometimes to do this because she'd become too weak to do it herself. And so remember, it would make sense because she stopped eating. Uh, and that was part of the, one of the things that killed her. And so she ate insects. She growled at religious icons and sat under her kitchen table barking for two days. And during that trial, the evidence of the possession worked both for and against the defense, right? So 42 of the exorcisms were auto, audio recorded, including various pictures of seriously ill-looking, bruised, and sore-covered Annalise. And she sounded pretty terrible, as you guys heard. The, def the defense claims that it proves Annalise was possessed, but is certainly not conclusive. If anything, I think that it just shows us that she could have been really ill maybe suffering schizophrenia and maybe she had disassociative personality disorder and schizophrenia together but of course we will never know and so I will leave that one alone and we'll go ahead and we'll move on to our next scary story with that we will move on to our next story. And this story is equally as scary and horrifying as the first. This story inspired a book, as well as an incredibly famous movie. This is the story of Roland Doe. Now, many of you may not know who Roland Doe is. He is the little boy that inspired the book the Exorcist, which in turn inspired the movie The Exorcist. And so why don't we kind of set the scene? It starts in 1949. Now he's a preteen at this point, and his aunt, Harriet, introduces him to a Ouija board. And he shows interest in this and continues to use it. Now his aunt dies in 1949. And after this, his family begins to note strange occurrences in the house. Uh, furniture starts to move on its own. Objects would levitate or fly across the room. And strange noises kept the family on edge and, of course, awake. As these disturbances continued, they also got worse. It started with some scratching on the walls that sounded like water dripping. And then the noises turned into thumping and footsteps. And at one point, a portrait of Jesus Christ hanging on the wall began to move and banging against the wall and this occurred only when Roland was nearby and he was 14 years old at this time so the family turns to their local pastor for guidance and this pastor is a Lutheran by the name of Luther Miles Schultz who happened to have an interest in parapsychology so he corroborated the claims of unusual activity to the, that the family was experiencing, and he told the parents that they should consult with a Catholic priest who was familiar with exorcism. So this kind of moves us into the first time that he was treated. He was treated by more than one priest and in different locations. Um, one of the most famous instances was the attempted exorcism by Edward Hughes, who conducted the exorcism at Georgetown University Hospital. The exorcism was never completed. Uh, the boy was able to escape the restraints during the exorcism and lash out at the priest's arm with bed spring that he tore out of the mattress. So they halted the exorcism and the family made contact with a Catholic priest who also was a professor 
and this time he was a professor at St. Louis University. And his name is Raymond J. Bishop. Uh, being an academic, he kept a daily log of the events that transpired while working with Roland. So after learning how the first exorcism unfolded, the priest decided to make a detailed preparations for the next exorcism. Uh, a priest by the name of Walter Holleron was called to assist Bowdern in the psychiatric wing of the hospital. Another priest by the name of William Van Roo was available to assist in the exorcism as well. The boy was strapped to a bed to prevent injury to himself and others, but the preparations weren't enough to keep the boy calm during the ritual. The second and final exorcism took place on Easter Monday in 1949. Having completed their preparations, the priests began the process of exorcising the demon from the boy in a secluded room in the hospital. And during the exorcism, Halloran noted the words and marks began to appear on the boy's body. At one point, he saw the word evil materialize. The word hell is also said to have appeared on the boy. Uh, portions of the exorcism where the saints are called upon resulted in violent shaking of Roland mattress. Now, I kind of want to pause there and kind of backtrack a little bit with this, right? So at this point, they're doing a second exorcism with more people, and there's a guy who's writing it down in a diary. Um, I would like to note that the diary was found in this hospital at a later time and was preserved. And there is a book called Possessed by Thomas B. Allen. Okay, they found this, uh, the diary in 1978, just before the building was destroyed. And the diary became a starting point for this book. Uh, and it provides the most complete account of an exorcism in modern times, which is incredible because you would think with the adaptation of technology and as things have progressed throughout you know the last hundred years or so that we would be able to have more evidence to support the existence of demons uh, not only demons but of course you know the existence of, of the paranormal of ghosts and spirits and you know shadow men and glimmer men and uh, cryptids so it's very interesting that something from 1949 is considered to be the most complete documentation of an exorcism in modern history. It just baffles me that this is the case. So it was kind of one of those things where I was shocked when I learned that. So we'll kind of move back a little bit, right? So during this time, of the second or the final exorcism i'm sorry uh, ronald would also enter a trance-like state and start to make sounds in a guttural voice uh, the priest supposedly also saw mysterious flying objects in the boy's presence and noted that he would react violently when he saw any sacred object presented by the attending priests um, at one point during this week-long ordeal bowden reportedly saw an x appear in scratches on ronald's chest which the priests believed signified the number 10. In another incident, a pitchfork-shaped pattern of red lines moved from the boy's thigh and snaked down towards his ankle. These types of things happen every night for more than a month, and everyone witnessing the event believed that Roland was possessed by 10 demons. And so these guys never gave up, right? They just kept on going. And so on the evening of March 20th, the exorcism reached an unhealthy new level. Um, Ronald urinated all over his bed and began shouting and cursing at the priests. Now, Ronald's parents have had enough at this point, and so they took him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Uh, and so this continues, right? And now on April 18th, a, and I'm doing quotations in the air here, a miracle occurred in Ronald's room at Alexian Brothers. It was a Monday after Easter, and Ronald awoke with seizures. He yelled at the priest, saying that Satan would always be with him. The priest laid holy water, holy relics, crucifixes, medals, and rosaries on the boy. At 10.45 p.m. that evening, the attending priests called on St. Michael to expel Satan from Roland's body. 
They shouted at Satan, saying that St. Michael would battle for him, battle him for Ronald's soul. Seven minutes later, Ronald came out of his trance and simply said, He's gone. The boy recounted how he had a vision that St. Michael vanquished Satan on a great battlefield. And there was no more documented incidences. Wow. Documented instances of strange occurrences and behavior after that. And as far as we know, he went on to live a completely normal life from that moment forward. So no one would ever know the true story of the exorcist, right? If it was not for an article in the Washington Post, which reported in the late 1949, with, you know, excuse of a few details, that priests had indeed performed an exorcism. The case wouldn't make headlines again for two decades. So we'll kind of move into the book a little bit here. In 1971, an author by the name of William Peter Blatty penned the best-selling novel, The Exorcist, based on the unofficial diaries kept by Halloran and Bodern. The book stayed on the bestseller list for 54 weeks, and it spawned the hit movie in 1973, as you are all aware. And so I wanted to point out something. So I've read The Exorcist, um, and I would encourage you to do so if you have never read it. It's an incredible book, very well written. But I won't lie, uh, I'm a horror fanatic. In this book, I had issues with, and it wasn't because I thought it was a bad book. It was because it was so real. And it kind of made me really nervous when I was reading it. And I'm not even sure half of it, right? It was a really good book, and it was really terrifying. And I have to admit, it was a lot better than the movie. So I would encourage you to read it if you haven't. Now, the priest died in 1983 after serving in the Catholic Church for decades, and Halloran lived until 2005 when he died of cancer. Um, the room that the Alexian Brothers Hospital, where this took place, was boarded up and sealed following the exorcism, and of course the entire facility was torn down in 1979. Uh, the house where the family lived in Maryland is now an empty lot after it was abandoned in the 60s. Uh, experts believe that this boy's real name is Ronald Hunkler, uh, although only one person apparently knows what his actual name is. And so now we're going to backtrack just a little bit. The Possessed, the true story of an exorcism, like I was telling you about that inspired the book from the diary. Um, this book... The guy who wrote it, Thomas B. Allen, claims that he's the one who uncovered the true identity and the story of Ronald Doe, but said that he would never reveal that person's name. So let's kind of talk about some of the explanations, right, and the investigations into this. So another author by the name of um, Mark Opasinik questioned many of the supernatural claims associated with the sto uh, story, proposing that Ronald Doe was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Uh, he reports that Halloran, who was present at the exorcism, never heard the, voice, the boy's voice change, and he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words he heard clergymen say rather than gaining a sudden ability to speak Latin. Uh, this author also reports that when marks were found on the boy's body, Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he had made the marks himself. And he had also questioned the story of Hughes' attempts to exercise the boy and his subsequent injury, saying he could find no evidence that such an episode had actually occurred. So... During this time, he discovered a few of these things. So the exorcism did not take place at 3210 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, Maryland. The boy never lived in Mount Rainier. The boy's home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Uh, much of the commonly accepted information about the story is based on hearsay and is not documented and was never fact-checked. There is no evidence that Father E. Albert Hughes visited the boy's home had him admitted to Georgetown Hospital, requested the boy be restrained at the hospital, attempted an exorcism of the boy at the hospital, or was injured 
by the boy during an exorcism, or any other time for that matter. There is ample evidence refuting claims that Father Hughes suffered an emotional breakdown and disappeared from the Cottage City community. According to Opsonik, individuals connected to the incident were influenced by their own specializations, and I quote, To psychiatrists, Rob Doe suffered from mental illness. To priests, this was a case of demonic possession. To writers and film video producers, this was a great story to exploit for profit. Those involved saw what they were trained to see. Each purported to look at the facts, but just the opposite was true. In actuality, they manipulated the facts and emphasized information that fit their own agendas. End quote. So after he located and spoke with neighbors and childhood friends of this boy, most of whom he only referenced by initials, he concluded that the little boy had been a very clever trickster who had pulled pranks to frighten his mother and to fool children in the neighborhood. Now to kind of shift a little bit, skeptic Joe Nickel, uh, who wrote, quote, simply no credible evidence to suggest the boy was possessed by demons or evil spirits and maintains that the symptoms of possession can be childishly simple to fake. Nickel dismisses suggestions that the supernatural forces made scratches or markings or caused words to appear on the teenager's body in unreasonable places, saying a determined youth, probably even without a wall mirror, could easily have managed such a feat if it actually occurred. Although the scratched messages proliferated, they never again appeared on a difficult-to-read portion of the boy's anatomy. On one occasion, the boy was reportedly seen scratching the words hell and Christ on his chest by using his own fingernails. According to Nickel, quote, Nothing that was reliably reported in the case was beyond the abilities of a teenager to produce. The tantrums, trances, moved furniture, hurled objects, automatic writing, superficial scratches, and other phenomenon were just kinds of things that someone of Ronald's age could accomplish, just as others have done before and since. Indeed, the elements of poltergeist phenomenon, spirit communication, and demonic possession, taken both separately and especially together, as one progressed to the other, suggests nothing so much as role-playing involving trickery. End quote. So, what do you guys think? Is it possible that this kid faked it just to get attention? Or was he in fact possessed? And I think that's the thing that we'll never really truly know because we weren't there. And we weren't him. And we weren't privy to the information that is involved and that these priests took with them to their graves. Yeah, they wrote a diary, and that diary provides a very well-documented case into one of the most famous exorcisms in the history of our country. But outside of that, there is really no tangible evidence that would say Ronald Doe was in fact possessed. I could agree with Nickel and, and say that film producers and authors would use something like this to exploit their own intentions to make money. But on the other hand, the paranormal side of me suggests that it's very possible that he was possessed and that he was exercised and it took that many times for the devil to be removed from his body. I think, like I said, we're never going to really know. And so I leave you with that. And I think it is a good time to shift gears into our last story of the night. Our final story of the evening takes us back to 1974, to a little town in Pennsylvania called West Pitson. And this takes place in a 92-year-old duplex dwelling located at 328-330 Chase Street. That belonged to Jack and Janet Smurl and Jack's parents. Now this duplex was built in 1896 and was located on a quiet street in a middle-class neighborhood. The house was bought in 1973. 
Jack's parents lived on the right half of the, and the Smurl family lived on the left. The Smurl family did a lot of renovations, and they wanted to make it themselves, their own place. So Jack's a Navy vet, and Jack and Janet met in 1967 and married in 1968, and Jack was a neuropsychiatric te technician. So the hauntings began very slowly. 1974, a strange stain appeared on one of the home's new carpets and had no explanation at all. Then the floodgates opened, so to speak. A television set burst into flames. The pipes continued to leak despite being resoldered. The new sink and bathtub were unexplainably scratched. And in 1975, Dawn, the oldest daughter, began telling her parents she saw people floating around her bedroom. And now, it's very strange, and this is reminisce of a show called the Black Monk series with the Hodgson family and the Perone family, who all had several daughters. So we have to kind of consider that that might have something to do with it. So in 1977, after years of intermittent and easily overlooked experiences, the phenomenon inside the home began to intensify. In addition to the inexplicable things noted, the family also began to hear footsteps. Other things such as unplugged radios, blaring music, cold spots randomly appearing, drawers were angrily opened and closed, and there were reports of permeating aroma of rot around the home as well. And then, a succubus. A succubus, you say? Well, Jack began to feel like he was being touched and caressed and watched. And he wasn't quite sure what it was. Now, Ed and Lorraine Warren believe that it was a succubus. There's no evidence to support this, uh, however, a good theory. So let's take a little detour and what's a succubus, right? So a succubus is a demon or a supernatural entity in female form that appears in dreams to seduce men, usually through sexual activity. According to religious traditions, repeated sexual activity with a succubus can cause poor physical or mental health and even death. In modern representations, a succubus is often depicted as a beautiful seductress or enchantress, rather than a de demonic or frightening. And the male counterpart to a succubus is an incubus. So just a little, you know, traction there. A succubus may take the form of a beautiful young girl but closer inspection may reveal deformities of her body, such as bird-like claws or serpentine tails. Folklore also describes the act of sexually penetrating a succubus as akin to entering the cave of ice. And there are reports of succubi forcing men to perform cunningless on their vulvas, which drip at urine and other fluids. In later folklore, a succubus took the form of a sign. So there's that. A succubus. It's kind of creepy. And if any of you have seen the movie VHS, one of the first couple stories in that is these guys go into a bar and they pick up this girl, these girls. And one of them is very, very quiet. And she goes to one of the boys and she says to him very softly, I like you. And that's all she says to him. She just keeps saying that to him over and over and over. And so they take them back to their hotel rooms and she proceeds to jump him. But his friend wants in on the action too. And so his friend attempts to have a threesome and she does not like that. And in turn, kills the friend violently. And the guy who she's trying to seduce takes off running away from her. Um, falls downstairs, breaks his ankle. And then as he's running through the night, she flies and picks him up and drops him from the sky. If you haven't seen that, if you haven't seen VHS, I highly recommend it. It is a very, very good movie. Found footage film kind of movie, but it is really well done. So let's move on. In 1985, the activity sparked to an all-time high. During this time, Janet gave birth to twins, Shannon and Karen, who only seemed to further increase this activity, right? So scratches began to appear on the family members, the walls would rattle, and the dog and Janet were both levitated. Jack's parents often heard insults, screams, and other loud noises emanating from the small side of the duplex. However, nothing ever appeared in their own home. So after years of annoyances, the, mo the most terrifying experience happened. A chandelier 
fell and almost killed one of the girls and missed her by inches. And at this time, the family members reported being sexually assaulted, the husband included in this, and, and including one of the daughters and the wife. So they also had reached out to Ed and Lorraine Warren at one point, and they never got back to them. And so they decided to get in touch with them again. And the Warrens responded positively, and they came and brought another person with them, Rosemary. She was a nurse and a psychic. And so their investigation lasted months, well into August of 1986. Their initial walkthrough, they believed there to be four different entities within the home. Three of them were fairly minor and were likely the causes of the initial disturbances. However, the last one was very powerful and very angry. And according to the Times Leader, which I do have a copy of this article in the show notes, Ed Warren said, The Smurls are truly a family coming under a visual attack. The ghost, devil, demon, or whatever you call it, is in that home. In order to deal with this most powerful entity, believed to be a demon, Ed Warren decided to contact a Vatican-mandated exorcist by the name of Father McKenna. Now, Father McKenna is considered to be a rogue priest at this point. The reason being is that during this time, the Pope had instituted Vatican II. And essentially what that means is that the Catholic Church is more modernized now in terms of its beliefs. Well, Father McKenna did not like this. And so he was considered a rogue for his rejection of these beliefs and his wanting to stay with the old tradition of the Catholic Church. So he's considered rogue. Now, the first attempted exorcism pissed off this demon and made it very angry. Uh, during this time, members of the family reported being sexually violated or otherwise made ill by the entities, as I've mentioned before. According to Helly Starr, Janet said she had been sexually assaulted by the shadows she had seen. One of the twins, Karen, suddenly fell ill and nearly died from an inexplicable infection. And Dawn, the second twin, also sexually assaulted by the entity. Janet and her mother-in-law had traces of beatings, bites, and all over her body and so father mckenna attempted another exorcism some months later and this one also failed now during this time the reporters were all over this family 80 people a day trying to get interviews trying to get in into the house and all sorts of stuff uh, and one of the reasons why is that there was a belief that this was fake, like the Amity. This was fake, like the Amityville house, which turned out to be a hoax. So there were a lot of skepticism, and because of that, you know, people didn't think that this was real. During this time, they also decided to write a book called The Haunted. Now, Ed and Lorraine were a part of this book, and so were the Smurls. And I think that's part of what fueled whether or not this was a real story during that time. You know, they wanted the media attention. Uh, they had fallen on hard times. So money was a key point here, right? It would make sense that they could, would exploit this to make some money. Now, I don't know if that's true. But it could explain a lot. So a third exorcism was attempted, but this time several priests as well as a group of parishioners from a local church were there. This exorcism was not supported by the Vatican. Uh, however, it did appear to work and no phenomenon was experienced for a number of months. Um, activity did begin again and the family decided to move. And since they moved, they have never reported other activity ever ever again one of these people that was thinking that this was a hoax goes by the name of paul kurtz he's chairman of the scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal in buffalo new york he said 
or sorry, he was a professor of philosophy at the State University of New York in Buffalo, and he said, it seems to us that a great to-do has been made about it, and we wonder if it is like the Amityville horror hoax, which was based on imagination rather than actual hauntings. His group, he said, is made up of hundreds of scientists and scholars willing to investigate claims of supernatural. He said no member of the committee has yet confirmed the existence of real-life ghosts or real-life dead ghosts. There is an explanation for the Smurl House, he said, but I wouldn't simply assume it is a haunting. So you can see that there is a lot of you know mysticism and a lot of people are uncertain and whether or not this actually happened it's just terrifying right it's pretty it's pretty scary okay another thing that kurtz said is he called for a group of scientists to offer free psychiatric and psychological help to the smurls but the smurls didn't feel that they need any help and he said, we think it's important to Mr. Smurl and the others in the Smurl family submit themselves to psychiatric and psychological examinations. People often look at demonology to explain many tensions that they experience as individuals and within their families. And they should consult mental health professionals that are not looking at them as sick or bad, but will help to alleviate their sufferings. So the question has been raised as to whether or not Mr. Smurl is delusional or is suffering from hallucinations or brain impairment. Now this is important. The article said that Jack Smurl told a reporter he did have surgery to remove water from his brain in 1983. Before this surgery, Jack said he had been experiencing short-term memory loss and that the problem probably stemmed from meningitis he suffered when he was in his late 20s. Now on the other hand, Smurl said that at least 30 people, including neighbors and other family, have experienced the same strange occurrences at the home and that the family didn't need psychiatric help. So you can kind of see why people were skeptical. And as I've said before, we'll never truly know because we're not the Smurls. If that's their long-lost kept secret that they're never going to tell anybody about, then that's what it is, and so be it. We will never know. We can only speculate as looking at it from the outside in and taking all of the evidence. So, with that, before I leave the show for the evening, I would like to leave you with a piece of something from the Warrens. Now, this was an interview that they did during Tony Sopera about this Tony Sapera was a a host and Ed and Lorraine would go on here often to speak to him. So this is an a couple minute excerpt from this interview about the Smurl case directly. So let's take a listen, shall we? It says here in one particularly horrifying event, Janet recalls being downstairs in the basement doing laundry when she heard a faint voice call out her name. She looked out the basement over she looked the basement over quickly and the source of the voice, but she couldn't find anything. Again, she heard her name, Janet. Her fear heightened as she spun around. She knew no one was home, yet she had the distinct feeling that she was not alone. When the voice called a third time, Janet responded, What do you want? The voice did not answer, but continued to call her name. Now, what's that all about? You know how many people hear voices like this in their homes? They hear the wife pull up in a car, open the door, come in, set the groceries down. The husband will yell up, uh, you're home, honey? He goes up, there's nobody there. These sounds come through telepathy. They're telepathically projected to the listener. Now, this is what she was hearing. Now, you also notice, Tony, now they're beginning to show fear. Yeah, because it says here that she immediately located her rosary beads and began praying. Yes. And it says, in another incident, while folding clothes one afternoon, Janet felt a sudden chill enter the room. She glanced up and watched as a dark figure, mm-hmm. human in form, glided past her and made its way to the living room. With a paralyzed fear, she just stood and stared. Yeah. After a few moments, she mustered the strength to follow the path of the dark visitor into the living room, which she found to be empty. Shaken, she decided to visit Jack's mother, Mary, who lived in the other half of the duplex. Upon entering the other half, Janet noticed that Mary was visibly upset. She sat upright in her rocking chair, gripping the arms of the chair. Before Janet could explain the strange event, 
that had just occurred, Mary explained that a dark figure had just come through the wall and passed through the house. Shadow ghost. Uh, shadow mm -hmm. ghosts are the most dangerous. They can actually solidify to the extent that they're almost like cement. And of mm. course, Tony, they could walk right through the walls. Oh, no Doesn't problem. mean anything whatsoever. But now both women <clears throat> are frightened, so now they're feeding it. Says there were also incidents that occurred in, few, in full view of more than one family member. An exceptionally disturbing event occurred one night in the summer of 85. Mm. Now they seem so certain about what they're talking about. Though some of the things that they're talking about seems almost outlandish, right? Think about that, spiritual telekinesis. I've never heard of spiritual telekinesis. And if you have, please, by all means, correct me. I am all about that, all right? Just, it's strange to say the least. So that's our episode. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping before I let you guys go. We are taking user submissions. And if you're interested in being featured on our show, you can reach out to us at paranormalexplorerspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at paranormalexp. Shoot us a DM. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you think. Subscribe. Download. Share it with your friends. Share us your stories. We love to hear them. So please share. One other thing that I'd like to bring out, something that's very dear to me. If you or someone that you know is having issues and they're in distress, you know, have them call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. All right, it can help them immensely. And even just by sharing it or, or sharing this podcast or something, maybe this message can get to somebody. You know, if you need help, you're not alone. So that number is 1-800-273-8255. You can go to their website, the suicidepreventionlifeline.org, and they have a chat where you can chat. They also have a texting feature where you can text that phone number, and they will text and talk to you. Again, that number is 1-800-273-8255, as usual. All audio used in this is free commons use. And the scary theme music you hear is Bezalian Studios. I'm your host, Keith. Stay scary.